Today's episode discusses difficult topics, including murder and sexual assault. If these are triggers for you, please listen with caution. This is part two of a series of episodes about women who were assaulted by the Center City Rapist between 1997 and 1999 in Philadelphia, and women who were attacked by the same man in Fort Collins, Colorado, two years later. If you haven't yet listened to part one, please pause this episode, listen to the first half in episode 123, and then return here. 23-year-old student Shannon Schieber was murdered in the early morning hours of May 7, 1998. At the time of her death, the Philadelphia Police Department hadn't yet connected the assaults that occurred before Shannon's death. Initially, the police investigated Shannon Schieber's murder as an isolated crime. Retired Philadelphia Police Detective Chuck Boyle told People Magazine that for a time, the police didn't realize they were looking for a serial rapist. That's understandable. Without the DNA connections to prior crimes in Philly, crimes that weren't actually coded as crimes or specifically sexual assaults, there was no way the detectives running this investigation could make that connection. Detectives worked relentlessly to solve Shannon Schieber's murder, and they started as you might expect. Who among Shannon's circle might want to do her harm? She didn't have a boyfriend, although there were certainly young men around the Penn campus who took an interest in Shannon. One man in particular had what you might call an unsettling interest, a graduate student named Uval Balor. Looking back on the story and the events that occurred in Center City, Philadelphia in the late 90s, you wish you could go back in time and help these detectives. You wish you could shout down a megaphone that carries sound over 20 years and tell them, that's not your guy. You're looking in the wrong place, and we know that's not possible. Without the ability to connect the DNA left in Shannon's apartment to DNA left at four other crime scenes over the previous two years, the detectives looked in exactly the right places. And that started with Uval Balor, a man who had a hard time understanding the word no and stalked Shannon Schieber. She'd been here barely a year. I think about Shannon's time in Philly. She was at a new school in a new city, one of the toughest schools in the country, in a doctorate program where, in many of her classes, she was the only woman, so dealing with the complexities of that environment. Then some guy fixated on her. She made it clear she was only interested in friendship. He pushed, and he pushed some more, to the point where Shannon filed a complaint against Uval Balor for stalking with the police special services at the University of Pennsylvania. He wasn't the guy. Neither were the other people questioned by Philadelphia police. Early on, any obvious suspects, guys who demonstrated an interest in Shannon and got rejected, were eliminated through DNA testing. They weren't a match. No one was a match. The Philadelphia police were hit with dead end after dead end until mid to late 1999, when tests were run on DNA from the four attacks prior to Shannon's murder the city finally realized there had been a serial rapist. And sometime after that realization, he left Philadelphia. In late July 2001, a report came over a police teletype machine in Philadelphia about a serial rapist in Fort Collins, Colorado. Fort Collins is around 45 miles south of Cheyenne, Wyoming. In 2001, Fort Collins had a population of a little over 120,000 people compared to the population of Philadelphia at the time, which was over one and a half million. We had a much larger police force, yet by the third assault in Fort Collins, their police department not only classified these crimes as a result of a serial rapist, they'd amassed an entire task force. 
There were extra patrol officers, forensic testing, extra detectives. Everyone was assigned to catch the man raping women in their community. All the while, Philly was still trying to recover from neglecting victims of the Center City Rapist. That report was pulled off what amounted to a fax machine, and it told a very similar story to the ones told by survivors of the Center City Rapist in Philadelphia. A young man, short, dark hair, olive skin, assaults in the early morning, still dark hours, promises he wouldn't hurt these women if they kept quiet, and eventually speaking to them as if he cared for them. The Center City Rapist had made his way to Fort Collins, Colorado. I'm Dina Marie, your host on this week's Twisted Journey. Welcome to Twisted Philly. There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings-on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've got it all here on the Twisted Philly podcast. True crime, haunted history, the coolest and creepiest places to visit. Welcome Welcome to to Twisted Philly. Philly. On Tuesday morning, September 9th, in 1997, police officer Tyrone Winkler responded to a call about a prowler near 12th and Pine Streets. This was around 1240 in the morning. This area of Philly is called Washington Square West. It's east of Broad Street, east of Philadelphia's City Hall, farther east than any of the four attacks that occurred that summer, although still on Pine Street. It was less than a month since the fourth reported assault that occurred in August 1997. That morning, Officer Winkler met a young man named Troy Graves. He was about 25 years old with a Bucks County, Pennsylvania address. What you doing in Center City, Troy? I'm walking home. I just moved in with my girlfriend who lives a few blocks away. My license has my old address. Okay, Troy, I'm sorry I bothered you. We got a call about a prowler in this neighborhood. I'm sure you can tell they weren't actual quotes, but that's pretty much what went down that morning. Because Officer Winkler, who worked in the 6th District, wasn't told there was a serial rapist in Center City, just a few blocks away. He wasn't told there were any recent rapes that summer because at least two were coded as non-criminal emergencies. Nor did Officer Winkler know there was a description of the suspect. The woman assaulted less than a month before Officer Winkler stopped Troy Graves at 12th and Pine provided a physical description of her rapist when she reported the assault. Officer Winkler did run Troy's license. There were no outstanding warrants, no criminal record. He didn't seem to be the prowler someone called and complained about, so Troy was allowed to continue on his way to his girlfriend's house. Officer Winkler had no idea the man he'd stopped was the Center City Rapist, due entirely to the fact most of the Philadelphia Police Department had no idea there was a serial rapist. The sketch didn't show up in the public until after the connection was made between these assaults, until after Shannon Schieber's murder, well after her murder, because none of the DNA from these cases was compared until 1999. Troy Graves wasn't born in Philadelphia. He was born in the Midwest. He and his family moved to New York, and then eventually they settled in Pennsylvania in a suburb north of Philadelphia. In an interview with the Philadelphia Inquirer after his arrest, Troy's mother said he was painfully shy as a child. He'd had girlfriends. These were loving relationships. She called them fairly long-term relationships because she said Troy didn't like to break up with anyone. At least as early as 1995, Troy Graves lived in Philadelphia. For a few years, he lived on Pine Street in the same Washington Square West neighborhood where Officer Winkler stopped him for suspected prowling in 1997. 
Troy left that apartment and moved to what he called a more affordable place in West Philly at 41st and Baltimore Avenue. If you follow me on Instagram, you've seen photographs of the homes in that neighborhood. It's called Spruce Hill. It's filled with enormous Victorian row homes and twins, and it's not at all far from the University of Pennsylvania campus, where Shannon Schieber went to school. His neighbors in both apartment buildings had very little to say about Troy Graves, other than he was quiet. They said he seemed a little shy. He was polite. He kept to himself. Sounds like they may have said hello to one another in passing, and they really didn't know much more about him. The last assault in Philadelphia was on August 28th in 1999. About six weeks later, Troy Graves was on his way to San Antonio, Texas. He'd enlisted in the military. Troy was sent to Lackland Air Force Base for basic training, and that was the end of his time in Philadelphia. After he finished basic training, Troy Graves was stationed at Warren Air Force Base in Cheyenne, Wyoming. His mother was very excited for him, and she was proud of him. Troy jumped from one job to another in the 90s back in Philly, and nothing really stuck. Nothing he did appealed to him. He didn't have money for college, so enlisting in the Air Force and working at an Air Force technical school might provide Troy Graves opportunities not only for a career, but money to go to school. Troy settled in Fort Collins, Colorado, outside of Cheyenne, Wyoming, in April 2000, and was married a little less than a year later. No one had any idea this quiet guy raped six women in Philadelphia just a few years before. No one, including his new wife, knew he'd murdered Shannon Schieber. And for a time, no one realized he raped women in Fort Collins, Colorado. I took a look at crime statistics from a number of different sources. According to the Fort Collins Police Services website, which reports crime statistics from 2008 through 2018, it's clearly a lower crime community than Philadelphia, which is what you'd expect. They have less than one-tenth the population we do. Part of it is simply numbers. But then when you look at crime rates, which is the percentage of crime committed per 1,000 people or per 100,000 people, the rates in Fort Collins are considerably lower using those metrics, too. So let me give you an example. In Philadelphia, there's roughly nine violent crimes for every 1,000 people versus Fort Collins with just about two and a half for every 1,000 people. The crime statistics in Fort Collins for almost every type of crime, whether it be murder or arson, burglary, motor vehicle theft, they've all been pretty static over the last 10 years. Rape is different. In 2011, there was a significant drop in reported rapes in Fort Collins and then another sizable drop in 2012. Since then, the number of rapes in Fort Collins has been between less than half to less than 70% what it was 10 years ago. And that's not just due to underreporting. And I want to make sure we're all on the same page with the definition of rape. For a long time, law enforcement and laypersons defined rape as forcible sexual intercourse. According to the Marshall Project, that definition of rape goes back 90 years. It's archaic. And for a long time, law enforcement, including the FBI, didn't include assaults if a victim didn't resist. Imagine that. You are so terrified and have no control over what's being done to you. You desperately hope that maybe if you don't fight back, you'll get out of this situation with your life. And then you're told, 
well, you weren't really raped because you didn't resist enough. I just fucking can't with that thinking. Oh, my God. In 2011, the FBI changed its definition of rape as penetration, no matter how slight, of the vagina or anus with any body part or object or oral penetration by a sex organ of another person without the consent of the victim. One of the biggest advocates for that change who really pushed the FBI to alter their definition of rape was Terry Fromson, the managing attorney for the Woman's Law Project in Philadelphia. The Woman's Law Project is the only public interest law center in Philadelphia devoted to the rights of women and girls. I'm going to read directly from their website to give you a deeper picture of what all of that looks like. The Woman's Law Project is a leading voice in the fight for equal access to reproductive health care, abortion, improving institutional response to all forms of violence against women, challenging sex and gender discrimination, and advocating for workplace equality and economic justice. We're proud to be a state-based organization with a significant track record of national influence and an extensive track record of legal precedents and policy reforms that advance the rights of women and their families, particularly those with few resources and little political power. Terry Fromson and Carol Tracy, the former executive director of the Women's Law Project, were instrumental in partnering with the Philadelphia Police Department to transform how the city investigated crimes of rape and sexual assault. In the years after Shannon Sheber's murder and the investigation by the Philadelphia Inquirer, which I mentioned in part one, that uncovered a pattern of miscoding some rapes and sexual assaults as non-criminal offenses. The Philadelphia Police Department demonstrated what was called a victim-centered approach by the Human Rights Watch. Since 2000, a Citizens Oversight Committee reviews rape cases in Philadelphia. Committee members come from women's advocacy groups like the Women's Law Project. They come from children's advocacy groups and staff from Philadelphia's Rape Crisis Center. Committee works with Philly PD to examine and provide feedback on how reported rapes were handled by the police. How were they classified? What questions did the officers ask? How were questions asked? What was the interview experience like? Was there a dialogue? Did rape survivors feel as if they had a safe space to report? Did police take these reports seriously? The committee is sequestered in a way. They review hundreds of reports behind closed doors in a confidential environment. They write their feedback on post-it notes and attach those notes to various pages in the report. There is no finger pointing. It's just feedback about how to get better. What worked? What didn't work? How might Philadelphia police do something differently next time? And what should they continue doing because it was the right approach? The other big change, reported rapes are no longer classified as Code 2701. All of that stopped pretty much after the Philadelphia Inquirer blew the lid off that scandal. In 2013, the city opened Philadelphia's Safety Collaborative, which houses the Philadelphia Police Department's Special Victims Unit, the Department of Human Services' Sexual Abuse Investigation Unit, the Philadelphia's Children Alliance, and staff from the District Attorney's Office. All of these groups in one building, which is incredible. The facility has a meditation garden. They provide on-site medical exams and counseling services. 
When the Safety Collaborative opened, former Philadelphia Police Commissioner Charles Ramsey told the Philadelphia Tribune the Special Victims Unit encounters sensitive issues. So this new site enables investigators, the Department of Human Services, and advocates to be available at one location. That makes it so much easier for victims to get services during traumatic experiences. Commissioner Ramsey also worked on a national task force to share best practices from Philadelphia's Special Victims Unit with other police departments around the country. In part one, I told you things got better exponentially so, and they did. I want to take us back, though, to Fort Collins, Colorado, where Troy Graves lived in the early 2000s while he was stationed at Warren Air Force Base in Cheyenne, Wyoming. I mentioned Troy moved there in April 2000, and in March 2001, he married a young woman he met in Colorado. The first rape attributed to Troy Graves happened in Fort Collins in May 2001, barely two months after he married. Is it possible there were other attacks prior to that time? Yes assaults, and attempted assaults. But that didn't come out until after Troy Graves was arrested in 2002. Like the time in April 2000, barely a month after he arrived at Warren Air Force Base, Troy was formally reprimanded for attempting to illegally enter the dorm of a female airman. We can all guess what would have happened if he'd got in. The second attack in Fort Collins happened about a month later in mid-June 2001. Both attacks occurred on the same street. So he's in a different city, but he's not changing his patterns. This guy finds an area where he's comfortable and he stays there. The first two assaults happened on a street that was about two and a half miles from Troy's house. He could have walked there. When I looked at these streets on a map, there was a main road that practically connected his street and that of his victims. Just like in Philly, at least when he lived on Pine Street, he didn't venture far to find these women. He probably watched them during the day. He saw them somewhere around Fort Collins or Colorado State University. He learned their habits and the hours they kept while they were at home and away. Less than two weeks later, Troy Graves raped another woman in Fort Collins, Colorado in late June 2001. This woman lived about five miles away from the first two victims, and you can actually watch her story on an episode of People Magazine Investigates, which is available on YouTube. She was a young wife and mother whose husband had been diagnosed with cancer. As you can imagine, she and her husband were focused on how to make the most of the time they had together, including time with their son. That summer, her husband decided to take their young son camping while he was still feeling well enough to go on a camping trip. I will tell you, I wish I hadn't watched that show. I usually avoid crime procedurals that might be about any true crime cases I'm discussing. When I found that program, though, it seemed at first like they weren't talking about the problems in the Philadelphia Police Department coding rapes and sexual assaults as non-criminal emergencies. So I watched for a time to make sure they didn't try to cover it up, like I'd be able to do anything about it if they did, 
District Attorney Lynn Abraham was interviewed, and she had all the righteous indignation you'd expect her to have about those circumstances within the Philadelphia Police Department. And I was literally screaming at her, it happened on your watch, Lynn, as if she could hear me. The young woman's from Fort Collins, Colorado, Troy Graves' third victim, was also interviewed. She was raped by Troy while her husband, who was dying from cancer, was away camping with their little boy. When Troy surprised her from behind, she thought about fighting, but he told her he wouldn't kill her or hurt her if she stayed quiet. She told interviewers all she could think about was surviving for her son because she knew someday soon her husband would be gone and she didn't want to leave her little boy without either parent. So warning, if you decide to watch that episode of People Magazine Investigates, her story is unbearable and that was it for me. I couldn't get through the rest of it. I knew the rest of it. I didn't know about her, and it was just heartbreaking. Troy Graves raped another woman in Fort Collins, Colorado, a month later in July 2001. This time, the victim lived barely a mile from Troy's house. It was practically down the street from his apartment complex. And Fort Collins was hunting for him. They knew they had a serial rapist in town. They warned everyone they were vocal They were upfront with the community, but how do you protect yourself from that? Two more attacks occurred in the summer of 2001 in Fort Collins, both in August. And then not long after that, the Fort Collins police got a call about Troy Graves. Because by this time, the Philadelphia police were talking to the police in Fort Collins. They saw that report from July 2001. They thought the guy in Fort Collins sounded just like their guy who raped five women between 1997 and 1999 and raped and murdered Shannon Schieber. So the composite sketch from earlier cases in Philly wound up in Fort Collins. A woman who lived across the street from Troy Graves called the Fort Collins police in September 2001 because she thought her neighbor looked a hell of a lot like the guy in the Wanted poster. Her neighbor was a very light-skinned African-American man with hazel eyes. He had short, dark hair. He was handsome. He drove the same sort of car that was reported to be involved with an attempted assault in Fort Collins about a year earlier. That sketch wasn't great, the one we saw back in Philly in 99. I thought it could have been anyone. To me, it looked like a young Italian guy with olive skin. Seeing pictures of Troy Graves after he was caught, you can understand why victims thought he was white or Hispanic. Troy Graves' mother was white. His father was African-American. He had very fair skin. Troy's neighbor wasn't the only person who thought that sketch of the Center City rapist looked like him. In a July 2002 interview with Philadelphia Inquirer reporters Clea Benson and Leonard Fleming, one of Troy Graves' ex-girlfriends was asked about that sketch. And although she said she thought it looked like Troy, she just didn't want to believe it was him. One girlfriend whom Troy met when he was living in a Philly suburb as teenagers lived with him a few years later between 1993 and 1994 in Philadelphia. Troy suffered from insomnia. At least that's what he told each of the three women with whom he lived over nearly a 10-year span. He took long walks in the middle of the night. One night in 1993, the Philadelphia police arrived at an apartment Troy Graves shared with his girlfriend because a neighbor claimed she saw someone on their roof peeping into neighboring apartments. When this guy realized he'd been seen, he ran back inside. 
According to his girlfriend, Troy managed to get back into bed without waking her and pretend he was asleep. It was the cops banging on their door that woke her up, and at least at the time, she thought also woke up Troy. Neither of them had seen a prowler. They'd both been sleeping. There was no one else in the apartment. The cops must have had the wrong apartment, but they didn't. Troy lived with another young woman on Pine Street in Philadelphia between 1995 and early 1998. The same patterns emerged. Troy went out late at night after midnight because he couldn't sleep. He'd take walks in Philly. He'd wander the neighborhoods of Center City. This woman said she knew Troy was doing more than just walking around, but she didn't know exactly what. She described him as rumpled when he'd return home after these walks She'd finally had enough because one morning he came home covered in scratches. Maybe she thought he was having an affair or multiple affairs, but she never imagined he could be capable of hurting someone. That night in 1997, when Philadelphia police officer Tyrone Winkler stopped Troy Graves at 12th and Pine Street because of a report of a prowler, he was actually walking home to his girlfriend's apartment. He hadn't lied about that, but he didn't tell the officer what he'd been doing before that walk home. Both Troy and his girlfriend moved out of their Pine Street apartment. That's when Troy moved to a spot in West Philly. His girlfriend moved to an apartment on Spruce Street. Shannon Sheber lived on Spruce Street and was raped and murdered in May 1998. None of his behavior added up to Troy Graves being the center city rapist. It added up to a weird guy who could also be charming and loving. He was overly attentive he was sensitive. The women who dated him said, even with these quirks that maybe made them uncomfortable once in a while, he was a great boyfriend most of the time. So is it a red flag or is it a pink flag? You know what that is. A pink flag is a red flag you don't want to acknowledge because of the butts. But he's so sweet. But we read books together in bed. But he holds the door for me but he's so smart. Oh, but he's kind and he's handsome. We've all had a case of the butts. Thinking that Troy Graves moved to Philly in 1993 and pretty soon thereafter started prowling the streets, feigning insomnia. Oh God, I, I just, I wonder what happened before 97. And I need to let go of that because there's just no fucking way for us to know. His ex-girlfriend had raised eyebrows about that sketch of the Center City Rapist. His neighbor in Fort Collins, Colorado, had more than raised eyebrows about that sketch in 2001. What about the police? Philadelphia police felt pretty damn sure the attacks in both cities were attributed to the same man. But neither city had a suspect. Leads had long since dried up in Philly. There were leads and people of interest in Fort Collins, but they weren't panning out either. So in September 2001, Lieutenant Ed Monahan of the Major Crimes Unit with Philadelphia Police Department came up with an idea. He worked identity theft, and he had experience in researching and building databases. Lieutenant Monahan suggested to the Special Victims Unit that he build a database of men who had lived in both Philadelphia and Fort Collins. Then he narrowed it down. Men who lived in these cities at specific times and dates the rapes occurred. He managed to narrow down a list of over 300 men to just about 40 possible persons of interest. 
According to the Philadelphia Police Department and the detectives investigating Shannon Sheber's murder, there were some obvious exclusions, even from among that list of 40 names. Men that were overweight, and I mean no slight to men carrying a little extra weight because between you and me, they are my favorites. But you can't slip between a seven-inch gap in burglar bars if you are carrying even one extra pound. Men in prison at the time of the attacks obviously were also eliminated, and that shrunk the list even more. Then the police started investigating men who had an alibi and those who didn't. While all of that work was going on in Philadelphia, Fort Collins police received a letter from their serial rapist. I'm sorry, but I can't let you catch me yet. Not in Colorado. I don't even like it here. I'm not a fan of cold weather. I don't even like going up to Fort Collins anymore. You guys are everywhere. I almost want to get caught. I don't like what I do. It keeps me at a distance from people and I can't talk to anyone. It gets lonely. I just can never find anywhere or anyone to go to for help. My dog helps a little. She's good company. And unlike cats, I know if anyone is anywhere near my place. Cats just watch me climb in and run and hide without making a sound. Useless animals. Where dogs have had me turn around and not look back. I want to go on and on. I never get to talk to anyone as much as you know already. A couple of useless facts can't hurt. Sometimes I just think it was the Catholic schools, my bitch mother, or womanizing father, or just any high school in the 90s depression, and the one to die. I just don't have the courage yet, and I'm getting paranoid though. My own mother wouldn't recognize that sketch. I've never been printed in my life. But I got in a fight and left before the police arrived not too long ago. I'm not getting caught like that yet. It's time to move anyway. How do you know it's me? Then the author described each of his attacks in Fort Collins where they occurred. He mentioned people's useless cats, his victim's hair color, what he did, and what he saw. But I am omitting that part of the letter. This is how he ended his communication with Fort Collins police. Let's not talk about Philadelphia. I don't miss it. Don't even know how I ended up there. Temple's overrated. Someone else was in the second story apartment that night because I didn't kill her. She was very much alive when I left. But there's no use arguing that, I suppose. Another state, another time. Troy Graves mailed that letter from Denver, Colorado. Denver's about an hour and 20 minutes south of Fort Collins. He went out of his way to make it appear like he wasn't a local. And then in his letter, he said he didn't like coming up to Fort Collins anymore because of the police presence. Over the next six months, Fort Collins police continued their investigation into the serial rapist in their community. They continued questioning possible suspects, men on that list created by the Philadelphia Police Department. Philly PD did the same, and they pushed Fort Collins to question Troy Graves. His name was on that list. His name was on the list when there were 300 names. His name was on the list when there were less than 40 names. He was the real standout for Philly. He was the guy the SVU detectives working Shannon's murder and the rapes in Center City believed was their guy. There wasn't any real movement towards Troy Graves until mid-April 2002, when an attempted assault occurred. A man surprised a young woman in her home. He came at her from behind, and somehow she managed to wrestle out of his grasp. She ran screaming through her house, and her intruder fled. 
timing and location of this led the Philadelphia police to believe it was the same man who'd raped other women in Fort Collins. And they believed that man was Troy Graves. On April 23rd, 2002, Fort Collins police asked Troy Graves to come to the station for an interview. He and his wife cooperated. They were each questioned in separate rooms. Like his girlfriends in Philadelphia, Troy's wife told police he suffered from insomnia and he went out for walks or drives late at night. She also told police she wasn't sure the insomnia was real and wondered if Troy was having an affair. Troy Graves answered all questions presented to him. They asked him about where he lived before Fort Collins, how long he'd lived there, and he answered truthfully. Troy didn't push back or hesitate until the police asked if they could fingerprint him, and he very politely said he would have to think about that. After a few hours, it didn't matter because Fort Collins police secured a court order not only for Troy Graves' fingerprints, but also his DNA. And that was it. His prints matched those recovered from the balcony of one of the attacks in Fort Collins. Of course, they matched prints recovered from Philadelphia. And his DNA, you guys know that was a match. It was the string listed in the John Doe DNA warrant Philadelphia District Attorney Lynn Abraham secured in December 2001. Troy Graves did not ask for an attorney. He didn't question the test results. He confessed to everything the rapes in both Fort Collins and Philadelphia, and the murder of Shannon Schieber in May 1998. Five years, 13 victims, 12 survivors, and the Center City rapist was finally in custody. On Friday, May 17, 2002, Troy Graves pled guilty to four counts of sexual assault, two counts of unlawful sexual conduct, first-degree kidnapping, and second-degree burglary in Fort Collins, Colorado. In Colorado, he was sentenced to life in prison for kidnapping and six sentences between 16 years to life for each sexual assault. These sentences are served consecutively, meaning serve life, then served six more sentences between 16 years to life. During the sentencing phase later that summer in Colorado, Troy Graves faced six survivors who somehow had the courage and strength to stand before him and share their truth. One woman told the court how she spent six months sleeping on her sister's floor. She was too scared to be alone. She spent a year suffering from insomnia since the attack and sometimes not only slept on the floor, but with her back to the door in case anyone ever tried to get in again. Another survivor said, I hate you, Troy Graves. Because of you, I feel safe nowhere. And the woman I mentioned earlier in the episode, who was raped while her husband was away camping with their son, she also spoke at the sentencing hearings. All of it was just so powerful and terrifying and painful. During his sentencing hearing, Troy Graves said, there is no response I can make of any sort that will change this. The past is unchangeable and I am sorry.
Two weeks after pleading guilty in Colorado, Troy Graves pled guilty in Philadelphia on May 31st, 2002, to the rapes in Center City and the murder of Shannon Schieber. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole to be served after he completes his life sentences in Colorado, which means Troy Graves will never, never get out of prison. Part of his guilty plea included a detailed confession of what occurred inside Shannon Schieber's apartment, what he heard, the knocks on the door, whether he thought they were Shannon's neighbor or the police. And you can guess why that was part of his plea deal. Shannon's parents brought a lawsuit against the Philadelphia police, believing she was murdered while the police were outside her apartment door. According to Troy Graves' statement, he did hear knocking, but he didn't think it was the police. It didn't sound like nightsticks. Now, there's more than two schools of thought about this. Shannon's parents believed Troy told the story in whatever way the police wanted, so they'd be, in a way, exonerated. Philadelphia police pushed back with indignation that anyone could question their integrity. And Dr. Michael Bodden, renowned forensic pathologist, testified during the trial against the city that the police had to have been outside while Shannon was murdered because of the time he believed it took for Troy Graves to strangle Shannon to the point of death. While he was in court in Philadelphia, Troy Graves spoke to Shannon Schieber's parents and the survivors of his attacks. He said to the city of Philadelphia and the victims and the families of victims and the friends of victims, I am sorry. My deepest sympathy to the Schieber family for their loss, and I thank them for how they've been throughout this. I wish I could offer more than an apology today. I'm hoping my future actions will reflect my sincerity. I've cooperated with authorities and profilers, which will maybe help future investigations. I'm thinking of ways to try to make amends. Troy Graves cried. He sobbed. He shook uncontrollably during his time in court in Philadelphia. Both his attorneys in Philly and Colorado spoke about Troy's sincere remorse for what he'd done, the fact he hated what he did, and he didn't know how to stop himself. Enlisting in the military was an attempt to put a stop to what he was doing, but it didn't make a difference because he found a way to continue preying on women while he was enlisted. Troy Graves' guilty pleas in Fort Collins and Philadelphia spared him a death penalty sentence, which is what former District Attorney Lynn Abraham wanted. But it wasn't what Shannon Schieber's family wanted. When Troy thanked Vicki and Syl Schieber for how they were throughout this, he was referring to their desire not to seek the death penalty. In an interview with the Catholic Review in January 2012, Shannon's mother, Vicki Schieber, reflected on the push the family felt from the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office. She said the DA's position was only a death sentence for Troy Graves would bring the family closure. But that's not what the Schiebers believed. Vicki Schieber said the death penalty wasn't going to honor Shannon's life and it wasn't going to bring her back. She said, I thought about everything we ever taught Shannon to believe, to turn the other cheek, to show compassion and to be forgiving if you have a set of principles and don't live by them when you are tested. Were they ever your principles to begin with? She also said, after her death, Shannon was sitting on my shoulder telling me, don't let him kill all of you too. She was telling me to take all of that energy and do good with it. 
That's what Shannon's family has done in a myriad of ways. When Shannon was murdered, the Shebers asked that instead of flowers, donations be made to a charity in their area that helps people rebuild their homes. Within three months, Shannon's family raised over $20,000. At the same time, there was a family in D.C. who was struggling. Their house suffered severe damage in a fire, and they didn't have anywhere to live. That $20,000, as well as donated services and materials, was used to rebuild this family's house, and that launched the Shannon Sheber Roofing Endowment Fund. In addition to helping families in need, Vicki Sheber is an advocate for death penalty repeal. In her work with other families of murder victims, she's heard so many stories of what she calls re-victimization. Families who have to endure lengthy trials, hearings, appeals, waiting and wondering if an execution will ever happen, and none of that, in her opinion, brings closure. During an event in 2007 for New Jerseyans for alternatives to the death penalty, Vicki Schieber said, two and a half months after Shannon's murderer was caught, he was sent away forever and I had such an immense feeling of freedom. But the civil suit against the city of Philadelphia wasn't resolved as expeditiously as Troy Graves' sentencing. Initially, the Shebers also tried to bring a suit against the two Philadelphia police officers who responded to that 911 call about a cry for help coming from Shannon's apartment, but it was thrown out of court. Their suit against the city of Philadelphia finally went to trial on February 12, 2004 almost six years after their daughter's murder. Their attorney, David Radovsky, opened with very strong words. He said Troy Graves murdered Shannon Schieber, but he wasn't alone. He had an accomplice, the city of Philadelphia. The lawsuit alleged Shannon's 14th Amendment rights were violated because Philadelphia police classified some rapes and sexual assaults under Code 2701, investigation of a person which meant non-criminal emergencies. And in doing so, it violated Shannon's right to equal protection under the law. Between 1995 and 1997, 2,500 reports were coded 2701. Of those, about 350 cases were improperly coded. So according to the police, that was just 14%. Well, if your report fell into that 14% of cases that were coded as non-criminal emergencies, just during those two years, it would still be 100% to you. Witnesses for the police department took this a step further because they said out of the 350 or so improperly coded reports, only 70 were rapes or sexual assaults. Well, we know at least two of those 70 were the first two reported rapes committed by Troy Graves. And again, I don't care how many it was. Every one of those reports were someone's life someone's safety, someone's ability to wake up in the morning without being terrified in their own fucking home. Former police commissioner John Timoney also testified on behalf of Philadelphia police. He said just because a report was misclassified didn't necessarily mean it wasn't investigated. I don't believe he perjured himself with that statement, but personally, I have a hard time believing something considered a non-criminal emergency was very high up on anyone's list of priorities. And he did admit some cases coded 2701 weren't investigated at all. After he left the courtroom, he told reporters, I feel awful for the parents. But the issue is this, is the police department responsible? I think that's a stretch. 
The jury began deliberations in this case against the city on Monday, February 23, 2004. The judge asked, had the plaintiff proved the police had a custom or practice of downgrading sex crimes complaints? The jury foreperson responded, yes, your honor. Next, the judge asked, did that amount to intentional discrimination against women? The jury foreperson responded, no, your honor. No, as in the city was not guilty of violating Shannon Schieber's 14th Amendment rights, nor was it complicit in her murder. After the verdict, Police Commissioner Sylvester Johnson offered his condolences to the Schieber family. As for Shannon's parents, their response to the verdict was that it wasn't about money, even though there were compensatory damages at stake. For them, it was about changing the system, changing the way Philadelphia police handled rape and sexual assault. That happened. Those changes happened. Just like when John Pollock had to threaten a lawsuit after months of fighting with then-Mayor Ed Rendell to make changes in Philadelphia's 911 system after his son, Eddie, was beaten to death after more than a dozen 911 calls went unaddressed. The Shebers wanted things to be better for other women in Philadelphia so that no one would go through what Shannon and the other victims of the Center City Rapist suffered between 1997 and 1999. It should not take the death of someone's child for people to do the right thing, whether those people are the police or city officials or administrators. In both cases, people knew our 911 system was shit and people in the police force knew about Code 2701. And in both cases, circumstances didn't get better until after the death of someone's child and parents who wouldn't stop pushing to make things better And it just shouldn't take that for our systems to be better. I want to take a minute and talk a little more about Troy Graves. Troy has been in prison for almost 18 years. He's 47 or 48 now. He does not deserve our sympathy, but I still want to give you some of his backstory that I found during my research. I mentioned he was born in the Midwest and his family moved a few times when he was young. Troy's dad was an alcoholic and a drug addict. He was abusive, physically abusive towards Troy and his older brother, probably towards Troy's mother, too. Troy's parents divorced when he was about 13, and then his father dropped out of his life. According to one of Troy Graves' ex-girlfriends, he was sexually assaulted by his mother after his parents' divorce. That has not been corroborated by anyone else. She shared that in an interview with the Philadelphia Inquirer about 18 years ago. Both of his ex-girlfriends who were interviewed mentioned his father's physical abuse towards the family and emotional abuse. This in no way excuses or defends what Troy Graves did. There are millions of people who have sadly suffered horrible childhoods who don't grow up to be rapists or murderers. I think about what both of his attorneys said, the one in Philly and the one in Fort Collins, about Troy breaking down during his sentencing hearing in both cities. I do believe he was genuinely remorseful, and that doesn't fix or undo or make anything better. As I researched this episode, I was reminded of another man who was convicted of rape in 2016 in the Rittenhouse Square neighborhood of Philadelphia, Milton Garcia. He's serving up to 44 years in prison. I mentioned the Fairmount Park rapist. We have a new police commissioner coming to Philly. Right around the end of the year, Philadelphia Mayor Jim Kinney announced Danielle Outlaw, commissioner in Portland, Oregon, will be taking on the role of police commissioner for the city of brotherly love 
and sisterly affection. She will be the first African-American woman to be commissioner in Philly, and she'll be the youngest in over 20 years. Commissioner Outlaw is inheriting a police force under investigation for a culture of sexual harassment and racism, a city with an unbelievable rise in violent crime, especially gun violence. 2019 was our worst year for gun violence in almost a decade. I think we're all hopeful about what Commissioner Outlaw will do going forward. We are grateful to Interim Commissioner Christine Coulter, who took over after Commissioner Richard Ross stepped down this summer amid allegations of allowing a culture of sexual harassment and misconduct. Oh, it is a motherfucking clusterfuck out here sometimes. And these two episodes have been pretty fucking heavy. I have a couple of things I want to share before we wrap up things today. So please stick with me because these news and updates and recommendations are really important to me. First, I want to share a podcast recommendation. It's called The Golden Ticket Podcast. Here's how I found this show. About a month or so ago, I got a DM on Instagram from a host named Richard asking if I would check out his show. He's a new podcaster. Could I give it a listen? Maybe give him some constructive feedback. I was a little taken aback because who am I to critique someone else's podcast? But I've experienced the benefit of constructive feedback about Twisted Philly from other podcasters. It's helped me so much. So I thought maybe I could help Richard. I couldn't help Richard because his show is so fucking amazing. There's nothing I could say other than keep doing exactly what you're doing. The Golden Ticket Podcast is a mix of storytelling and interviews. It is real and raw. It's genuine. These are stories from inner cities with people who have experienced life. Good, bad, everything in between. People who have changed their lives. They've impacted others in ways they may not even realize. And through it all is Richard's amazing voice and storytelling. The episodes are short. They're less than 20 minutes. So I devoured his show in two nights because I was so enamored with Richard's style and his audio engineering and just his amazing conversations that he has. This guy could teach me so much about creating an atmosphere within your podcast. Richard is a new creator. He's a young creator and a creator of color. It matters to me so much to help amplify voices like that and help create a bigger audience for him and others like him, for the people he interviews. He's so authentic, and I am blown away by the Golden Ticket Podcast. Part of me wishes I hadn't binged, because I want more, and now I have to wait every week, but it's worth the wait. Oh, it's so good. Thank you to my friend Jeffrey Mitchell for the voiceover you heard in this episode. Thank you to Emmy Sarah for the music you heard in this and almost every episode of Twisted Philly. You can find out more about Emmy on her website at emmysara.com and download her music on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. That's it from me. Ciao for now, Twisters.